Welcome to the Emerald City Hockey Podcast. Join RJ and Dylan as they discuss each week's Seattle Kraken news and top stories from around the league. Oh, RJ, how I'm going to miss the rain when I go back down south. Yeah, have fun with the uh, heat wave that's coming. I'm seeing temperatures in the high 80s, low 90s down there in Southern California. Uh, Good luck with that. Yes, I got a text from my sister three times yesterday. It is 90 degrees. That's all it was, (laughs) just three times. It is 90 degrees. And I'm just like, yep, sucks to be you. (laughs) But, But yeah, the weather has been awesome up here. Really, really enjoyed that change of pace. Uh, enjoy some of this. Brings me back to my days growing up in San Jose. It's, uh, it's been really nice. And, um, I mean, everything's been nice up here this whole trip. Uh, getting to spend some time with the grandparents now after all the go, go, go up there in Seattle with you. That was all fun. And, uh, and you know, real quick, shout out. We are recording this uh, on your birthday, Monday the 15th. So, Happy birthday. Thanks, Dylan. Uh, but yeah, so we thought, you know, this week, because I'm still kind of in limbo, traveling, doing stuff, and, um, you know, the fact that I was up here for this week, we're, we're going to do the podcast a little different. We're not going to quite go, like, game by game and break down everything um, like normal for this first part. Uh, I'll just kind of quickly share some of my thoughts from seeing everything, finally being able to experience everything uh, that RJ's been getting to do. And then um, we're going to jump into some, you know, basically the, the major questions that, you know, the last couple of weeks have, have kind of brought to the forefront for all of us as Kraken fans. Uh, and that is, of course, questions about Coach Hackstall and questions about, you know, goaltending and defense. So um, that's what we're going to kind of be doing today. Real quick, you know, like I said, we'll kind of talk about the experience of being up here, going through everything. Um, I had a lot of fun going to the games obviously going to the games was awesome to finally be able to be at a Kraken game in person to be able to do that in climate pledge arena was a lot of fun um getting able to be up there in the press bridge with you um even though it feels a little sketchy at times just with the uh the shaking and all the movement yeah you like that yeah my vertigo loved it that's for sure especially the fact that you know for some of it you're like staring straight down over this ledge um but uh, but no, it was it was a really really fun experience. That arena is beautiful. I love the windows. I'm never. I don't think I'm ever gonna get over the windows. Not even just the windows that like overlook the um the like the ice and stuff itself, but just all throughout the main concourse. Just having all that natural light come in during the day and stuff is is really really cool. I I do think that is you know something that future arenas for any sport is gonna start bringing in we've, we've seen that kind of creep into the nfl and um and those stadiums but i, I think for for more modern arenas i think windows are going to be one of the big features crowd was awesome unfortunately didn't get to see a win you know and um that was that was rough but the crowds at both games was really lively super into it you can tell that the passion is very much still there for this team um I know you know it's it's been rough these kinds of losing streaks, especially this one we're on right now. But uh, everybody still showed up. Everybody was loud. That was a lot of fun. Definitely one of the louder arenas I've been to. 
And then uh, yesterday, being able to go to the practice facility for that practice, uh, and it, you know, a, it was cool that the that the fans were there. I think we've talked about that before. Anytime you can, you know, kind of give fans access to that stuff, incorporate them more into the experience. That's a fabulous thing. Um, I, I think that's something, you know, all sports teams should do. It's you know, fans are the lifeblood of this whole experience. Without them, none of this you know, works or exists. And um, so I think whenever you can bring them more in, involved into things, you know, and, and really you're not, they're not super involved. They're just watching a practice, but it, it does give you the feel of being a little more involved with the team. It helps build that bond with the team. It helps build that bond with those players. And I think that's all really important for long-term success of a team and especially a team that right now is maybe struggling a little on the ice. Yeah, and Ice you Plex see, is really cool. Yeah, and you could see yeah, the players kind of felt the difference too. You know, as someone who's kind of watched both, you know, practices that have been open to the public and those that haven't, I think it was good for the team to kind of see that the fans were still there and excited about them and, you know, cheering for them when they did well in a drill. You know, I think that's good for the morale, certainly given the situation that they've been in. Um, and that was just really nice for me to see. Yeah, for sure. And um, and then the Iceplex as itself was really cool. I, I liked the aesthetic. Again, lots of windows. Rink three is kind of like right up, you know, open to the side there. It's got lots of windows. That wasn't where the Kraken were, but I, I still like that the idea that you could you know be skating or or play a, a hockey game right next to some windows, letting in natural light and stuff. That's something that you know we're just not used to seeing. Uh, certainly not in Southern California where it's way too hot to have anything like that. Um, so I was very, I thought that was a really, really cool feature. And then I just liked the general aesthetic. I liked the layout and how it kind of, you know, everything is really accessible, um, through everything that, cause that's something that some, you know, practice facilities I've been to, like the Kings one can kind of turn into a maze pretty quick as you start trying to figure your way around to all the different rinks and all that stuff. Um, so I liked how accessible everything was here and, and then just, you know, the use of, of wood as kind of an accent color on walls and, and all of that. I thought that kind of gave it a nice, um, more comfortable feeling. And, and I was really appreciative of that. Uh, it just made it feel like a very nice and inviting place to be. So I, I do hope that, uh, you know, everybody is, as you go through at some point, maybe you don't go there to see a practice. Maybe you're just there to skate or something. But I do think it is worth a visit going out to that uh, pretty sweet Northgate facility. For sure. Uh, we also checked out the uh, little team store that they had there. Uh, one thing I wanted to check was the uh, the jerseys that, you know, like the player t-shirts uh, to see kind of, you know, who was sold out, you know, what, what they had. This is the first time, I want to say, the first time that I have seen uh, them actually have some Brandon Tanev jerseys in stock. They've been sold out like every other time. I think they probably just got another shipment in. Um, but uh, yeah, he's been popular. Yeah, and they only had one left. That's so. true. There was just one. So I'm sure someone went and grabbed it right after we were there. Yeah, and uh, Eberle was sold out. So that yes. was cool to see. Yeah. That's, that that's what scoring straight. eight That'll... goals in eight games will do for you. Yeah, for sure. All right. But, you know, of course, we were at that facility because it was practice. And, um, you know, it was practice after another loss, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, team seemed pretty, you know... Uh, in good spirits, despite everything, um, whether that was just, you know, because they knew they were going to be in front of all the fans and everybody, 
or whether it's because you know maybe they're just trying to to stay positive through everything. I, I will say it felt very different after that Minnesota loss than it did after the the Anaheim loss. For sure, the Anaheim loss felt very much. Um, everybody was very upset. Not like not like oh we're sad, but like they were pretty angry with themselves and frustrated with everything. But after that mm-hmm. after that Minnesota loss, you kind of got the sense that they were maybe trying to take maybe a different approach to dealing with it, where they were gonna, you know try to focus on okay well we we've been doing some good things let's try to focus on that let's try not to take it too hard it's it's one of 82 you know maybe maybe i i haven't been there for all of them so i can't say but but i do think that maybe if that is a change in tone from what they've been doing um i could see that maybe helping them out against you know chicago in this upcoming game yeah it was interesting certainly after the ducks game i think both of us were interested to see you know, whether that kind of, you know, really frustrated, you know, angry with themselves kind of tone would, would stay going forward, especially after another loss. Um, but yeah, I mean, good to yeah. see it didn't stick around too long. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, as, and it was interesting hearing the difference in the answers too, after the games where, you know, you felt like after the Ducks game, it was just, you know, almost didn't want to talk about everything that was going wrong. Like we know, Versus, you know, after uh, the wild game, it was just, you know, talking about the things they need to fix again and, and um, you know, and saying, you know, taking responsibility for some things and also just saying, you know, we just need a win. I don't care how it comes. We just need a win. And once we get one, we can kind of string things together. So I think that's kind of where the group is at. Yeah. So that is definitely something uh, we both felt should be brought up in all this. But a lot of the discourse this past week and through this losing streak has been about Coach Hackstall. So we should, you know, go ahead and start there. Uh, we've seen it on, our, you know, Twitter a bunch. We've seen it on really everybody's Twitter accounts, all the Kraken, uh, you know, whether it's uh, reporters or fan accounts, right? That's kind of been the, the one of the big topics of conversation. And then certainly in our post-game lives, it's been something we've we've touched on several times because many, many of you guys have brought it up. And and I do think we are at the point where it does need to be talked about. And that is, you know, is Coach Hackstall the right coach for this team? Um, I still think it's maybe too early to be like demanding a firing. Uh, we are only 15 games into a season. Uh, but yeah, I got to agree with is you there. Yeah, but it is something we thought we'd bring up. So RJ, you kind of have like, where are you at with Hackstall? Before we kind of get into any specifics about what we feel about him or maybe his style, where, where are you kind of at? Well, I mean, going into the season, uh, it would have been very difficult, you know, to, to imagine a scenario basically where I can imagine him being fired mid-season at any point, um, just given, you know, the nature of this being an expansion team and... It, I think the team also kind of wanted to temper expectations to be like, look, at a certain level, we don't know what's going to happen. We, you know, this is still a pretty big unknown. This is only the second time this format has ever been done for an expansion team. And certainly with Haxtell being a more development type coach, I think there's less of an emphasis from the top on results early on, you know, win-loss results early on. Um, so I, I think on some levels, it's it's too early to judge. You can certainly have takeaways about whether you think he might be the right coach long term or not. Uh, and I and we will get into those. Um, but I, I'm kind of at the point where I, I would like to see a little bit more earlier in the season. 
uh, it was, it felt like everything made sense, even when things weren't going right. You know, going into that first homestand, the talk was about, you know, after the, the first road trip kind of ended poorly, and you figured, well, they're tired, they still need to get some systems in. And he's like, all right, we're going to work on the transition game. We're going to make sure we're fast in transition, and that's what we're going to be really good at. And they worked on it really hard for two days in practice, and they came out against the Canucks, and it was a lot better. It was quite good. They lost the game, and that's unfortunate, but like that element was better. And then they're like, all right, cool, fix that. Good job coaching. What's next? And the two things were quick starts at home and the power play that he said were what needed to be worked on. And you look at those two things, and they just they're not, they're not they haven't improved. Uh, you know, in fact, you could argue that they're they're a little worse than they were at that point. So. Um, Anyway, sorry, I'll stop getting into my long-winded answer, but that's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think that's fine. I think it's all fair. Um, kind of going like segment by segment, let's go ahead and start with that, because that is something we, with um, you know, the expectations thing, because that is something that we talked about during that last post-game live, which was, you know, looking back to the expansion draft or even the announcement um you know, his his hiring press conference for Hackstall and stuff, right? Ron Francis was big on kind of talking in a way that made you feel like, um, you know, at the time we all read it as, oh, he doesn't want to get everyone's hopes high based on Vegas just because that's such a high bar to clear. He's just trying to keep temper expectations a little bit, you know, um, that way if they don't, you know, go and win a Stanley Cup year one, people aren't going to be disappointed or anything. But looking back with hindsight being what it is now, some of the things he said where he's talking about having a three to five year plan, all of a sudden that, that does feel like, well, maybe that maybe this is in some ways part of that plan. I do think they would like to have won more, particularly at home uh, to this point in the season. But I, I am starting to kind of think that, yes, this team is more concerned with building something for the future rather than trying to equal Vegas's success or, or come in guns blazing and trying to really, you know, put their stamp on this league right out of the gates. Now, that's um, you bring up a good question, though. You know, how much, at I guess, at the time and now did you kind of buy that talk about you know, well, we're not judging ourselves against Vegas. We're, we're looking at a three to five year plan. We're looking at a bit long term because I think at a certain level, that's something that an expansion team is going to do anyway. And it's something certainly that I've heard that Vegas even did where, you know, you want to temper expectations, not just for the fans, even for own, for ownership too. Um, you know, I was talking to someone who, um, you know, knows some things inside the Vegas organization. And, you know, he was telling me a story of how, you know, early in the season, you know, this is before everyone, you know, they had come super hot out of the gate and, you know, the expectations certainly weren't set as far as how well they were going to do. But, you know, where the GM's talking to the owner and, and at that point, the Penguins were the previous Stanley Cup champions and they had just gotten blown out at home. I think it was like eight to one, nine to, you know, terrible game. And, you know, the person I was talking to said, you know, he heard the story that the GM was kind of turned into the owner, Bill Foley, and said, look, you know, this this can happen to anyone. You know, you have the defending cup champs just getting blown out on their home ice one night. So, like, 
if it happens to us, like it can happen. So it shows that, you know, there's kind of this effort to temper expectations no matter what. Um, so I guess that's my question. How much kind of do you think it's just something that it's natural for any, you know, management of any expansion team to do versus how much do you really think that three to five year plan is there? Yeah, I, I think certainly the management team in in a normal circumstance wants to do that for an expansion team just because traditionally things have always been rough for expansion teams in any sport, right? Mm -hmm. Just to come in um, the way they come in is always difficult. Obviously, the NHL did something very different this last, you know, these last two go arounds with Vegas and then with Seattle. The league was as a whole was not necessarily totally prepared for it with Vegas. And that's how you saw them make so many side deals and accumulate a lot of assets um, during their expansion draft process that, you know, we talked about at the time, a lot of GMs kind of wised up this go around. So I could certainly think that, you know, Ron Francis to some extent was also trying to, you know, even earlier than the draft itself, kind of explain to everybody like, Hey, um, I've been talking with people and nobody's going to be doing these side deals with us. So, you know, let me kind of put out the narrative that we're not going to necessarily be um, a, a Stanley Cup team right out of the gates and or also accumulate a lot of draft assets that we can use to jumpstart our prospect pool the way Vegas did, even though Vegas then eventually turned around and largely traded away a lot of those assets for more um, pieces to win now. Current pieces, yeah. Um, that Seattle just wasn't going to have either of those two options, right? They weren't going to accumulate a bunch of draft picks to use to build for the future, and they weren't really going to accumulate assets that they can then flip for um, you know, anything that can be used now either. So I do think that Ron Francis probably got that sense pretty early on in the whole process, like, like a year ago probably. He knew that, just talking with all the other general managers. Um, so I'm sure he was also trying to temper expectations just for the expansion draft and just, just to kind of get us to all, you know, not be as surprised as we were when the day finally came and there were no side deals and we didn't accumulate a bunch of assets and we weren't, you know, uh, taking on bad contracts and using our cap space to, to, you know, kind of rake teams over the fire for, you know, first round picks and all that stuff that we saw with Vegas and, um, maybe he didn't do that too great because we were all still surprised on draft day. Yeah. Um, but I also think just the fact that it is Ron Francis versus, you know, looking at Vegas with George McPhee, right? right? George McPhee is coming from a situation in Washington where it was a win-now situation. He was a he is a little more of a win-now type general manager. Um, whereas Ron Francis, if you look at his time in Carolina, he always put a big emphasis on having you know, one of the league's best scouting staffs and mm -hmm. trying to draft really well in the first couple rounds and stuff. Like, that was part of what he did in Carolina, and that's part of who he is as a general manager. So I, I think just the personality and, and stylistic differences between those two general managers for each of these last two expansion teams maybe also should have been something that we all looked a little closer at. Um, rather than just kind of saying it at the time, maybe it was something we really needed to digest a little more. Um, but I mean, I mean, do you think that's that's reasonable to say now? Um, I, to an extent. I mean, I, I 
don't want to even because because we're kind of you know getting away from the hack stall thing i you know i but I, I could make more of an argument about you know why i don't think that's necessarily you know the, the case that the plan was a longer term thing i think there's some evidence to the contrary where certainly the free agent signings you know if you think that your window is going to be three to five years from now why are you signing a 29 year old Jaden schwartz you know, why are you signing a 29-year-old a, a Adam Larson to term? Why are you signing a 28-year-old Jamie Alexiak that by the time you get into your window, you know, that you're going to be on kind of the tail end of those contracts where they're not looking as good? Uh, you know, why do you sign a 29-year-old Philip Grubauer? Um, that's where, you know, if you're taking the longer-term approach, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, so that's kind of my evidence to the contrary, really. Uh, but, you know... <laughs> I yeah, know. I mean, it's it's possible that those were reactionary post-expansion. It's possible he had no idea that the expansion draft was going to go the way it did, and he wasn't going to be able to accumulate draft assets, and so he kind of did that in response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and we can kind of get into our evaluation of Ron Francis later. You know, I, I do have a lot to say about that, but, um, you know, the Hackstall decision was... Yeah, yeah huh? go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, yes, I guess bringing it back around to Hackstall, it was... We knew Hackstall was a development coach, and that's why you know it kind of lends itself to thinking maybe the the whole plan was a little more long term. And it's also worth bringing up that you know we're kind of also guessing that because the other, the only other thing you can kind of say about it is that well, Hackstall was just the coaching hire because essentially him and Ron Francis became friends, right? Like at that <laughs> um, at that world, what was it, the World Cup, right? Or um, or the, and, the world and so championships, yeah. the world championship, yeah. So, because um, that's really the only other connection there is is you're either saying you're hiring someone like Axel because you have this plan to want to develop long term and develop young players because that's what he's you know good at. That's what he's known for. Um, but but you know the other the other thing you can point to is just that they they have worked together in the past and that they are friends. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I think that contributes in any coaching hire that any GM makes. Uh, it's rare that it's someone that they don't have any experience with. Um, and when you look at Ron Francis, too, you know, he's worked with a lot of different people in the hockey world in his time there, you know, whether it's as, you know, a teammate or, or in management or, or what have you. But, um, yeah, I think that did play a role. Um, and because and, there were other guys that he knew. I mean, we were talking about Rick Tockett as, as a potential coach. You know, there were a few other guys that also had similar connections. Um, so you kind of look at, you know, what he was looking for. And at the time that the Kraken hired Hackstall, my whole argument on it was, you know, don't say that they the Kraken kind of struck out on guys like Gerard Gallant or, you know, I know Quenville was in the rumors at that time, you know, those bigger names that people were hoping for, because I didn't think they struck out. I think Ron Francis got exactly what he was looking for. And because you look at the coaches that he did have some interest in, and they all kind of fit a profile, right? They were guys that were more known for either development or communication. They didn't necessarily have that NHL track record of like a lot of playoff success. Um, and they kind of fit that mold, and that seems like what he was looking for, uh, whether it was Hackstall or, or one of the other finalists. Yeah. So you know, again, that's and that's kind of how we got sort of sidetracked in that long-term approach. Yeah. Um, but I mean, let's let's go ahead and talk now. I guess about those things. Do we feel that 
development and communication and all of that stuff has really been brought to the Kraken by Hackstall. Um, because I think at this point it's, you know, we're what, 15 games into the season, you've only got four wins. Um, so obviously immediate success hasn't necessarily come and been brought to the table. Um, I think given some of the stretches of losing streaks, you could argue he's not uh, maybe like a motivational coach the way some guys are. Right. Um, which is fine, right? Like I'm not that kind of coach either. Um, it's That's a really hard thing to be. I, I also believe in that. Um, but like as far as development communication go, you know, as you mentioned before, he improved the transition game when they wanted to do that, right? He yeah. he knew how to how to do that. He knew how to get those guys to to learn what system he felt was going to work well. But the more we see other problems develop in the team's game and not kind of get addressed, the more I wonder was that maybe just a fluke <laughs> or <laughs> or or is it that he's just you know, maybe not as concerned as maybe the rest of us feel about things like the power play or or about maybe some of the defensive structures that they have going on. You know, I, I start to feel like it's the latter because we saw how much they work on the transition game. It's it's something that even now there st- seems like their primary focus, right? This was your first chance to really watch them, uh, you know, practice and, and we kind of work together on the ice in your visit here. And one of the things that we noticed is there's still a big emphasis on, on the transition game and there wasn't as much of, well, you know, everything else as we'd like to see. So I, I think that, you know, when you do focus in on something, uh, you know, there has been success, but Haxtell hasn't always gone and focused in on some of the other things that need fixing. It seemed like he was kind of in denial about the power play for a while, uh, you know, even after a lot of us were kind of raising concerns. Um, you know, some of the defensive things, you know, we haven't seen them really, you know, address uh, as strongly, like, you know, man, you know, man, getting your man in the defensive zone, just, you know, covering who your guy is, that sort of thing, uh, where, you know, to the extent that we've seen them practice it, and you look at this with the power play, you know, when they do practice that, look, that little play down low, the one that you talked about post-game where they got the power play goal, you know, they practice that, they put it in a game, and it worked, you know, they stopped being as predictable on the power play. So when they have been practicing things that's been working, uh, it just, the emphasis hasn't always been on the right thing, I think, at the right time. Yeah, I mean, even one of the things we noticed while watching, you know, the morning skates and the practices and stuff is, yes, they're still working on the transition game, but they're not even working on the part of the transition game that's been a problem for them. And that's been entering the offensive zone. They're really good at getting the puck out of their own zone. We've seen that, you know, for many, many games now. And and certainly all of the drills were built around that. But what we've seen time and time again is they get to the offensive zone. Somebody will carry the puck in through the middle instead of just along the boards like they were doing. That really wasn't working. But now somebody will carry the puck in over the middle and then they just kind of die in the high slot because no one's there with them or... Guys are there with them, but they don't know where they are, right? Like, it's just a very fluid, guys are just where they end up, rather than there being some sort of structure or system there where it's like, okay, you're going to go in, and if you if you can go all the way, go all the way, and maybe ch- try to take a good shot from the slot, but if you get hung up, your first option is always going to be over here at the half board, or going dropping back to the blue line, and then we can get everybody into the zone and establish ourselves there, or... 
you know what I mean? Just some form of, I, I, or yeah, I mean, the other option would be some form of dump and chase, but I don't want that, and I don't think any of us do. But no. um, you know what I mean? Like, like some sort of set, like this is, these are our things, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, if, and, and there's just not really that happening right now. We just see them go into the zone, and then there's just no one around, and they either lose the puck or they try to force a bad pass through, like, triple coverage. Yeah, and, we, and so I, I want to see more of that focus from the transition game. Agreed. I mean, I think that would be a good thing to focus in on. Now, you touched early on, uh, earlier on, you touched on the development. You know, is he bringing the development? Because that's, you know, what a development coach is supposed to do. And when I think of evaluating the development of, a, you know, abilities of a coach, it kind of becomes this question of just, are the young guys getting better? That's how I see it. Are the young guys getting better? And, you know, on the crack and on this roster, I mean, you kind of look at, I don't know, what's, what's your age cutoff? You're, you're the scout. You, you know, what's your age cutoff basically for when you think of the young guys when you talk about development? I don't know that I would base it necessarily on age, but rather like years of experience. Fair enough. And I would say anybody with four or less years of experience would kind of be the cutoff for that. Okay. Because I feel like you, you generally you need like two years just to get the game to slow down a little bit based on what we've always heard from guys. And then with certain other positions, like with face-offs, if you're a center, like look at just about any of the top players. It was always around their fourth or fifth year that you know finally face-offs kind of came together for them. Mm-hmm. That's something that you'll see across Jonathan Taze, Sidney Crosby, Steven Stamkos, all those top guys. It took a good four or five years before really you're starting to look and, and complete your, your all-around game approach. You know what I mean? Right. Okay, so looking at the Kraken roster then, guys who kind of fit that description. You've got Nathan Bastion, Morgan Geeky, uh, Hayden Flurry, uh, Will Borgen, Jeremy Lauzon. Are those guys getting better? Is is Nathan Bastion getting better? Is Morgan Geeky getting better? Um, we, we have no real way to know if Will Borgen's getting better. Um, <laughs> you know, is Hayden Flurry getting gonna... better? Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say with Borgen, I guess we can assume he's not, considering Haxtall has basically said, Well, when I feel like he's better than someone else, he'll be in the lineup. And yeah. so obviously he's not getting better. Um and, and again, that's one of those things that I think you can point to. Um really with all of those guys that you mentioned, I think there's kind of been a feeling that maybe some of them have either not gotten better or they've all kind of gotten worse. Right? Yeah, I mean um, I I don't think we've seen you know, that upward trend line for a guy like Morgan Geeky, I, he's he's got the skill that he's got, but, you know, we saw, you know, a very impressive showing in the first game of the season against Vegas, and I just don't know that there's been a whole lot of progression since then. I mean, it looked like Hayden Flurry had turned a corner and become something that, you know, we we all kind of felt that he could be, and then, you know, he's been riding the bench the last couple games. Um, you know, Jeremy Lausanne, yeah, we've, we've talked you know, ad nauseum about that. <laughs> I, I don't think we're seeing the upward trend line there, even though, you know, but there's signs of it. What do you think? Right, but, well, but uh, I think with Lausanne, kind of like with um, Borgen, with Will Borgen, those are kind of the poster childs to say that, no, the development isn't there. Because just like you could say with Borgen, well, hey, he's not in the lineup, therefore he's not really being developed, he's not being helped at all. He's not improving his game. And, you know, if it's one player, maybe you can just say, well, maybe that's just Will Borgen's problem. But I think Jeremy Lauzon is really the guy that, that brings it all together because we've seen him play so much. Mm-hmm. And 
and the mistakes he's making are simple mistakes. It's not like he's trying to make aggressive plays like Vince Dunn, right? right? Vince Dunn has run into some problems this year, but it's also because he's probably trying to do too much. Um, whereas with Jeremy Lauzon, when he runs into problems, it's doing stuff that, you know, you're, you try to coach out of guys when they're, you know, preteen or teenagers. Yeah, Certainly it's... at several levels before the NHL. And so I, I think that's probably the... the the key piece to look at as far as, you know, every time Jeremy Lauzon tries to play the puck instead of playing the man, or every time he drifts away from his own net and leaves somebody, you know, right in front of Grubauer, or every time he's just, yeah, not paying attention because his head's not on a swivel, he's just watching the puck where he slides over to Larson's side, and you know what I mean, and both defensemen are now all of a sudden committed. Every time that happens, I think you can kind of and, and the fact that they keep happening is is where you can point to saying that the development just isn't there. Yeah, I think you make a good point. And the mistakes are just the most coachable mistakes that you can have as far as just drifting away, losing your guy. So, yeah, Lausanne's a good good example of that. And, you know, as I look at this roster and I just kind of see, I think, what, five guys that I named, you really look, the meat of this lineup is, you know, 29 years old, you know, in that range, give or take a year. Um, and you know, those guys aren't typically ones that you would, you would think that a development coach would be the right fit for, right? Right, exactly. Generally, those are guys that you're looking for someone to either be maybe a little more tactical with, um, cause you're trying to get the most out of all these guys in their prime. So you're, you know, you're trying to create, um, plays or systems that's going to use everybody to their advantage or you're looking for an excellent motivator or a leader of men, so to speak, right? Where um, guys aren't going to necessarily get too high or too low, right? You're, you're going to limit things like losing streaks because you, you're just going to get everybody fired up and you're going to get everybody to believe in themselves and they're going to go out there and they're going to you know, make sure that stuff like that doesn't happen. Uh, again, those coaches are exceedingly rare. It's a very, very hard thing to do. Uh, especially in a sport like hockey where you're talking about 82 games. Um, but yeah, I mean, typically you don't want a developmental coach for those kinds of guys. You would assume that they know who they are as players at this point. You know who they are. They know who they are. They know what their strengths and weaknesses are. They're perfectly capable at that point of, of working on those things right? Mm -hmm. Of watching tape themselves and, and seeing what they need to work on game to game. Uh, that's something like, you know, Colin Blackwell talked about, right? Coming back, he said he was watching all the tape and he's kind of a tape nerd and all of that. Um, generally, guys who have been around in the league for, for four or five years plus, they understand, they know how to do that. They know how to take care of their bodies better between games, right? They, they know what works for them as far as rehabbing from injuries. All of those things that a development coach kind of brings to the young players and helps them understand and learn about themselves, the rest of this lineup, you know, in theory, already knows about themselves. So you don't need to focus on that stuff. You, you can then focus on things in practice like, you know, hey, let's create some systems for entering the offensive zone. Or, hey, let's work on moving around on the power play more because you guys are capable of that. So that's, that is another area where, yes, I think him coming in as a development coach maybe hasn't lined up well with the roster. Mm -hmm. Now, 
as I mentioned before, you kind of got your first chance to, you know, really watch them on the ice, practicing, working on things this week. Uh, and I'm curious, what did you think about, I don't know, kind of his style working with the players on the ice? I, I think you pointed out to me that there was, uh, you know, he was pretty heavily involved and that that's maybe something where you don't always see that, where sometimes the assistant coaches are more involved. Can uh, I go into what, what you thought about that? Yeah, so I thought it was interesting that he was kind of um, dictating what the team was going to be doing, right? They they would come together at center ice kind of more frequently than you're used to seeing, or at least that I'm used to seeing, as far as him bringing everybody around, explaining what drill they're going to do, and then, yes, being the coach with the whistle that is going to start and stop every rep of the drill. That's not something you generally see too much around the NHL. Usually, you know, the assistants, the, the head coach will talk with the assistants about stuff, and then the assistants will run the drill and the head coach will kind of float around and, and observe things, um, talk to guys, right? Pull guys aside and say, hey, I'm seeing you're maybe doing this, maybe try that. Or um, just kind of, you know, kind of be taking a mental picture of where everybody's at, um, seeing, you know, what's working, what's not working. And then, you know, you'll reconvene with your assistant coaches later and maybe work on tweaking a drill or um, changing up what drills you're doing rather than being focused on making sure you're starting and stopping the rep on time, right? Like, okay, that was the mm -hmm. second shot that you guys have tried. That's it. You know, um, instead of thinking about stuff like that, cause you're actively running it, you can kind of take a step back and, and look at the bigger picture more. So I do wonder if that is something that is maybe uh, contributing to some of the other stuff we've been talking. About. Yeah, it, it's, it's certainly possible. Um, so there's one question I think about, you know, the coaching, we, we move on to the tactics and there's one question we've gotten, I think more than any other in this past week, we've got to talk about the goalie pulls, right, Dylan? Oh my gosh. Yeah. We had to get there. Yeah. We're not going to, we're not going to bury that any further. Let's talk about pulling the goalie and specifically pulling the goalie early. And I, I, we also have to talk about the execution. So why don't you why don't you just remind everyone kind of what what's happened with the goalie pulls the last couple games? So in that in that first game of this new home stretch uh, in that Anaheim game, you had that um, very awkward goalie pull. Uh, it was what two twenty ish left in the, period, in the third period. Uh, cracking her down, they they go to pull Grubauer. And as they go to pull Grubauer, as the word gets out to Grubauer and he starts skating, um, four of the five Kraken on the ice also decide that it's time for a line change, even though they had possession in the offensive zone. So right away, you and I both were like, this is something we've never seen before. And predictably, when you then only have one player on the ice um, in the offensive zone trying to keep possession of the puck all by themselves... They turned it over because how could you not in that situation? It's five on one and um, the Ducks go down and they score, you know, easily on the empty net because then there was massive confusion as as possession was lost during the line change and during Grubauer getting to the to the bench. There was a lot of confusion going on and ultimately the Kraken ended up with only five guys out there like they completed the line change, but they didn't add no extra any skater. extra attacker. Yeah, so that was that was a. A horrendous result for a, a an interesting to say the least um, kind of ways of going about that. And then in the Minnesota game, 
you have Hackstall pulling um, the goalie with what, like five minutes left, a little yeah, over five minutes. Five, five twenty. Yeah. So that's something that is again high. And then also getting scored on fourteen seconds out. later. Right, and again, it it didn't really work. It kind of happened to coincide with. A, a change of possession in the offensive zone where Minnesota gains control of the puck and and now your goalie is, has just been freshly pulled and and all of a sudden you're down again. So um, two two different two different kinds of uh, results for for pulling the goalie. I mean the result end result was always the same, but certainly the ways of going about it was very different in each of them. Um, one of them I think for both of us was far more inexcusable than the other. Um, and that is, of course, the, the the horrible everything in the Anaheim one. You know, we'll we'll start with that one. How do you line change while also pulling the goalie? Like, I, I just don't even understand that with possession in the offensive zone. I I think you know what says it best is the fact that we couldn't remember ever having seen that before. I mean, you and I have watched a lot of hockey in our lives, and I, I remember that night after the post game, I just point blank asked you, "Hey, Dylan." Can you remember, you know, in all your time watching hockey, can you think of a worse executed goalie pull? And you said no, and I, I agreed. I couldn't think of anything else. I have never seen that before. Um, and it, it was just flat out baffling. And then also to not put the extra skater on, you know, the, the cherry on top. Um, yeah, the, the, it's just inexcusable. Uh, just that kind of poor execution. There, there's nothing you can really say to defend that. No, but there is something to be said for pulling the goalie with a lot of time. Um, why don't you explain kind of what the analytics say about that and uh, and how, you know, while a lot of people were maybe critical of that decision, you and I maybe stood a little bit behind Hackstall and, and said, no, I mean, it, there is some logic to it. Right. And so for when it happens, you know, again, the early goalie pull, this time with over five minutes to go in the Minnesota game, I think the conversation kind of shifted, you know, away from the execution uh, instead to how early the goalie pull was and the timing of it. And this is one where Hackstall actually does, you know, have some numbers, have some analytics on his side. Um, you know, I know it seems like with the empty net, especially with them getting scored on so quickly after the goalie pulls both times, it just seems like this obvious thing that, well, yeah, you're going to get scored on right away. But, you know, looking at the history of all these goalie pulls, you actually don't get scored on, uh, you know, as quickly or as often as you would think. Um, and that, you know, looking at the history of it, the earlier you pull your goalie, the more likely you are to score that tying goal that you need. You're all, all, also obviously more likely, you know, to give up, you know, an empty net goal. But, you know, at that point, you don't care. You just need the tying goal. That's what the goalie pull is all about. So the numbers actually do uh, back up Hackstall there as far as the early goalie pulls. Um, and we do know this is an organization that, you know, that values analytics and that, um, you know, that was one of the reasons that Hackstall was chosen, you know, maybe in, in opposition to some of these other candidates where he certainly believed in the organizational mindset on that. And I'm kind of surprised it's even taken this long before we've seen a super early goalie pull because I figure that's something that they kind of believe in in the organization top down. Um, I don't think there's a whole lot of people that, you know, that disagree with that element of it, that, you know, working in, in hockey ops for the team. Um, 
So, yeah, and I, I think Dylan and I are kind of in agreement in general that pulling your goalie earlier is a fine thing to do. Um, but you've got to execute on it. You know, you can't do it during a change of possession. You certainly can't do it during a full line change. Um, and you, you've got to actually put the extra skater out there. I mean, anything to add to that, Dylan? No, I mean, that's that whole the, the whole mess of that was just ridiculous. And I and I think, as you said, it's best summed up just in the fact that neither of us have ever seen that before. Yeah. So, uh, I have yeah. one more question on the goalie pulls, though, because going forward, you know, there's a chance the Kraken might be down a goal or two toward the end of a game. I think this is a situation that's going to come up again. And if you were, you know, if you were Dave Hackstall, would you continue to, you know, let's say you're down two, would you pull the goalie with, you know, three and a half minutes to go, you know, give or take? Or, you know, and this is something that, um, you know, that, that my dad kind of pointed out to me because he's been watching the games. And he's like, you know, if I'm Haxel, I wouldn't even, you know, I, I just, even if you think it's the right thing to do analytically, just given the amount of, of criticism that's been on you for this, it's just, the, it's going to look bad. You know, if you get scored on again, it's just going to look worse on you. And it's, you know, just something you don't want to deal with, even if the analytics say that, you know, that it's what you should be doing, that you just shouldn't do it, at least in, in the near term. What do you think about that? I don't necessarily agree with that. I think if it's something that fits your philosophy, I think you you have to kind of ride or die by that. I don't like kind of coaching out of fear in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think if you're making that decision because you're worried about having to face some criticism from the media and fans later, um, I, I don't think you're then in a position to be doing your best job, regardless of what aspect of the game it is. Um, so I don't know that I agree with that. I, I think... If I was him, I would I would stick to it and I would keep doing it. And I, and every time it didn't work, instead of you know worrying about the criticism and stuff, I would be talking with the team about how you know what lessons can be learned from it, and and how we can do things differently each time. Um, if if losing possession right away is is becoming a problem, then I I I personally look at okay, how are we losing possession? What are the signs that we're going to be losing possession so that maybe then I can read it differently and pull the goalie at a different time where we're not going to immediately lose possession? And then on the flip side, I would look at it and I would and I would tell guys like, you know, look, if we send out the message that the goalie is being pulled, maybe instead of trying to press in those moments, because both times we saw possession lost with them pressing towards the net and possession was lost behind the goal line each time. Yes, right? It was kind of lost behind the net. If, if, if maybe I tell them, look, if you're that defenseman playing the near side of the um, benches, when you hear the goalie being pulled, communicate that to the forwards and maybe cycle it back to the D for a sec. Cycle it back to the blue line. Let's make sure we re retain possession while the extra attacker gets out there and then we can move forward with our you know six men um, system. I, I would use I would use both of those opportunities as as a place to learn and, and like I said, see see where the problems were with losing possession, both for the players and for yourself, as far as recognizing it and, and pulling the goalie when you did. And I would adjust those things before I would stop doing it because I do think that it's one of those things. This is the benefit of an eighty-two game season. The analytics show it works out more times than it doesn't. Uh, then go ahead and keep doing it, and eventually it will work out more time than it doesn't. Um, 
I would be afraid of the small sample size. I, I would I would really only be afraid of repeating the ducks incident. Yeah, exactly. As long as the execution is fine, um, and I think you said it well. You know, that's that's you could take it as a learning moment, and again, make sure you get the execution better. But I am with you. I don't have a problem with the early goalie pulls. You know, in and of itself, um, but the execution uh, needs to be there. Yeah. But that will kind of segue us into the other um, big topic of conversation from this past week. And, um, you know, a lot of debate on places like Twitter or in our um, live chats during our postgame lives. And that has been, you know, have some of the struggles been goaltending or defense? I yep. think uh, a lot of people have asked that question. A lot of people have been debating that. Uh, we continued to kind of see some soft goals. We continued to see some you know, either breakaways or odd man rushes going the other way that have resulted in goals. Um, there's There's been a lot of that. So RJ, real, you know, I'll just ask you straight up, are the goaltenders to blame or is this on the defense? It's not, you know, it's not the most interesting answer, but I there's elements of both. <laughs> um, I think we've, we have our criticisms of what, you know, the defense has done, losing guys. But if you're going to make me pick one, I, I got to say the goaltending. Um, you look at, you know, you look at some of the defensive numbers that the Kraken have put up, and generally they're not allowing, you know, a ton of, of high danger chances against. It's it's not good. They're not in the top like half of the league, but you know they do allow. I think as of two games ago, you know, the fewest shots on goal uh, of any team in the NHL, which that certainly doesn't tell the whole story. But you look at the statistics and defensively they're allowing enough that it, you know they're, they're not allowing too much basically that they should be giving up as many goals as they are and look at any goaltending metric you want um you know goal saved above expected goal saved above average you know the good old save percentage you know anything you want to look at and the kraken goaltending has been either you know the worst or like you know top three bottom three worst in the league um, so I think goaltending is generally more responsible than the defense, but I think there's certainly elements of both. What do you think, Dylan? Yes, I, I would agree with you there that I think while it's, it's really a team problem, and I think the forwards are also to blame for some of this too, particularly some of these bad losses uh, in the offensive zone that, that lead to some of the breakaway opportunities and stuff. Um, I, I do think that goaltending, if you're if you're having to kind of put a majority of blame on one of those two, it's got to go on goaltending because the bottom line is, I understand that the D might be putting you in higher danger opportunities, and that's that is definitely something that needs to be talked about. At the end of the day, we've seen so many soft goals go in, and you know it's normal. You'll see some here and there from a goalie throughout a year, right? That's that's normal, but. For a while now, it's it's almost seeing like there's at least one a night, and it's kind of regardless of which goalie's in, and that's the scary thing is that it's not just you know like oh it's just Grubauer that's having this problem. Drieger's having this problem too, and and just we're just seeing easy saves at sometimes key moments um, go in, and they just kind of end up becoming these backbreakers um, for the for the whole team, and um, 
and that's really ultimately the worst thing you can do as a goalie is is kind of kill momentum for your team right absolutely and i you know that's that's one of the things that makes this position so difficult and why the mentality of goaltenders has to be what it is um but that's really the one you know cardinal sin that there is for a goalie and that's if the team's you know doing something like in that ducks game where you've clawed back from two goal deficits multiple times but then you're gonna just let kevin shattenkirk walk in on you and let it squeak through under your arm a very stoppable shot that's that's just one of those things you just can't do no and and it makes a big difference and you know i try not to talk about you know the sharks too much you know they're the team i followed before the kraken but i do think it's applicable here um as a team that for the last you know maybe three years four years what had probably problems with both goaltending and defense you know they had just about league worst goaltending so i feel like i've seen this before but it wasn't entirely the goalie's fault the defense was quite porous and you would often hang out the goalie to dry a few times but you know, you look at this season, they're finally starting to get some good goaltending and it's made a big difference early. Um, and it shows that it can kind of cover for some defensive miscues. So I, I just think goaltending is, you know, that much more important, um, even though it, it can be both, you know, that, that are responsible. But that brings me to a question though, that, that we've been getting a little bit is, are the goalies really this bad? Like are Grubauer, is Grubauer that bad? Is Drieger that bad? Or are we just seeing a rough patch? What do you think, Dylan? Yeah, um, I guess we'll start with Drieger because the sample size for Drieger, you know, historically is a lot smaller than with Grubauer's. Um, so I, I do think that while, you know, Drieger was very, very, very good last year, I, I do think that there's maybe some, you know, in, in some ways a, a regression towards the mean with him. In, in some respects, like, um, you know, he's he's been good playing largely smaller roles on a pretty good team, right, in Florida. Uh, you, you know, he didn't really play any games with Ottawa, three games in three years. You can't look at that at all. Um, but the last two previous seasons in Florida, while he's been very good, A, those were very good Florida teams defensively, both their defensemen and their forward groups are good. And you're still only talking about a 35-game sample size. Mm -hmm. So um, I know expectations were high for him coming in, but I do think that this is one of those instances where, you know, he we didn't totally know that he was a great goaltender right out of the gates anyway. Um, yeah, and that's a good seen, point. Yeah. On the flip side, do we have enough of a sample size? I mean, you want to use a small sample size in that way. Do we have enough of a sample size with the Kraken? I mean, to make really any kind of judgment because he's played 88 minutes for the Kraken this season. You know, you got a 60 minute game. He's played 88 minutes. So, you know, less than a game and a half. Um, I mean, is that is that really enough to go off of? No, and it's not even close. And I think that's something we've all wanted to see more of is is to see more of him. Um, I, I do think it's a thing for any goaltender. The more reps they get, the more comfortable they're going to get with the team in front of them. I think that's very important for an expansion team like this or any goaltender changing team. So that's kind of applicable to both him and Grubauer is at some point, you know, it just takes reps and time to get comfortable understanding how your D plays in front of you what kinds of shots they're going to let through, what kinds of guys they're going to let through, that kind of stuff. So I do think Drieger 
he needs absolutely to have a larger sample size here. And, and, you know, we did see he is a goalie who is perfectly capable of getting very, very hot and being unbeatable. But in order to do that, he's got to play. Exactly. Um, moving on to Grubauer, because, you know, this is kind of the more pressing one. He's, you know, clearly been treated as the starter so far. You know, is Grubauer really this bad? Um, and for me, anyway, the answer is certainly no. Um, you know, you look over his, his NHL career and, you know, over 220 game sample size and, um, you know, the numbers have been stellar. You know, I, I don't think he's an 880 save percentage goalie. Uh, and you, you've got to think those numbers are going to regress, you know, toward the mean at, at some point, right? Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure they will. The, the one thing I will say about the just looking at save percentage for any of the goaltenders on the Kraken is the Kraken are very good at limiting shot attempts, but they're not very good at limiting high danger shot attempts. Exactly. So, so that, that is save, definitely worth yeah pointing out. Yeah. So just looking at save percentage for any goalie who's playing in the crease for the Kraken, it's going to inherently look worse because they're going to be facing a lot more high danger chances while facing less chances in general. So there's not going to be a lot of stuff to kind of pad their stats there. Um, as far as Grubauer, I mean, I, I have two trains of thoughts with Grubauer. One, which is he's been very, very consistent throughout his career. And, and he's been a very, very consistent, good goalie, right? He's always been an above-average goaltender. Um, he's, he's always looked good. Um, but on the flip side, he's always looked good playing on very good teams. And he's always looked good um, largely as as a backup or as kind of a 1B type goalie. Really, you could argue last year was the only year he was a team's bona fide number one starter throughout his whole career. And so there is the question of, you know, why is that the case? If he, if he is really good, is it just because he was always stuck behind great netminders? Or is it because maybe there is just something to him that isn't quite at, you know, number one, true starter level yeah and it's it's a question worth asking and certainly given you know the amount of money in term that they kind of threw his way and and given what the record is you know he showed certainly all the signs i mean you know season after season he would play fantastically i mean he really didn't have a bad season in the nhl you know through his whole career you know when when the kraken signed him um but yeah you see the workload you know the 40 games played last season was his, his kind of career high uh, in a season. So, you know, there is that question about him. Um, but, you know, I, I think he's certainly not as bad as he has been. You know, a big sample size of numbers, you know, bear that out. Um, you talked about, and I think it is a good, you know, warning for, for fans looking at this and, you know, the kind of the story that save percentage doesn't tell. I am certainly more of a fan of, um, of goals saved above expected. Uh, which does take shot quality into account. Um, and Grubauer, of course, also last place in the NHL in that metric as well. Um, so just kind of all around. And that's what I, what I meant when I was talking about, you know, no matter what metric you look at, you know, he's, it's, it's bad. Um, but there's reason to believe that it, it won't stay that bad, uh, you know, going forward. Yeah, I mean, we've virtually never seen goalies stay kind of at like, all-time lows for for a long stretch of time um this this very well could just be an instance of both goalies are cold obviously Drieger had to deal with an injury there so that's partly why he hasn't seen as much time um 
So you just happen to run into having both goaltenders go cold at the same time, and then you just, you know, it's really hard to win games. Um, but at the same time, that's where you look back to, well, we're only 15 games into a season. That can easily change. You get both goaltenders hot. Uh, you, you know, you look at like Vegas last year, right? There mm-hmm. were certainly stretches where you had both Flower and Leonard both, you know, red hot and also ice cold. And the team kind of went with that. And, and that is one of the things that I think we talked a little bit about going into this season. When you have two goaltenders who are kind of capable of of doing that and kind of capable of shouldering a load for a time, um, you, you want to try to manage it so that you can kind of ride the hot hand. If there is no hot hand, you're just kind of stuck until someone, you know, figures it out for a little while. And I think that's probably where we're at with yeah, but it gives some hope that, you know, things can be turned around because there's nothing more powerful in hockey than having a hot goalie that you can ride. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's gotten plenty of teams out of the basement of the standings in the past. Uh, and the Kraken, it seems, certainly to have two goaltenders who are capable of doing that, even if they haven't uh, yet. So that's probably the, the biggest key to them, you know, getting back into the playoff race. Yeah, the uh, the... The Blues of a couple seasons ago, that Stanley Cup team, I mean, that is the team to look at as far as maybe how they did it and certainly to look at for inspiration for all of us as Kraken fans to know that, yes, while things look really rough right now, you certainly are not out of hope at all. For sure. I mean, they were last place in the NHL standings, you know, the whole NHL in January. You know, imagine, you know, two months from now, the Kraken are in last place. You know, that's where they were, and they won the Stanley Cup. So, you know, it's certainly... Right. And, and, a, and a lot of that was because Bennington got red hot. Yes, huge part of that. And I think you bring up a good point as far as them as a team to emulate because, you know, there was that Bennington getting hot and also just this refocus on, you know, they brought in a new coach, Craig Berube, and he focused on, you know, establishing a defensive identity of, you know, we defend, we, you know, play in low-scoring games, and we're going to suffocate the offense of any team we're playing against. And we're going to, and that, of course, relies on, you know, having that good goaltending, but they got it. And I think that's, you know, a model that the Kraken could follow. I mean, they're certainly built for it. Absolutely. Not just just with their depth defensively, but also with a lot of the forward group that they have is guys that are more than capable of playing very strong defensively. And I do wonder if that's partly what's contributed to the high danger chances for the Kraken giving up to other teams is because the forwards are maybe so focused on transition games right now, kind of to, to you know uh, round things out by going back to that. Um, and, and maybe they're not back-checking in the same way that they were. Um, you know, Certainly when you look at the amount of shots given up up close and through the slot that that isn't just on the defense there that's also where you're talking about you know kind of where is the center as far as that being their defensive responsibility yeah so but yes i guess you know long story short it's kind of on both but if if we if you had to pin us down on something goaltending has has slightly been a bigger problem than the defense at the moment um but you know again going back to what we talked about earlier i feel like with a lot of the defensive miscues a lot of it's stuff that can be coached out yeah i think so and it's it, again it gives some hope really in both areas you know for it to be turned around uh the defensive miscues are the kind of things that that you can improve and that can be coached i certainly don't think it's from a lack of talent mm-hmm. 
yeah. So, um, anything else you had to say on that? No, I think that that just about covers the question. I mean, you both have to be improved, but I think both can be, and certainly with the goaltending, I think it will be. Yeah, for sure. I, I also agree. Um, then I think that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us for this one. Uh, one last time, happy birthday, RJ. Thanks, and, Dylan. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll look for, forward to this week for the Kraken, hopefully turn things around here um, as the schedule starts to get tougher. But, you know, we at least got this first game against Chicago. Hopefully that can be the rebound game, and uh, we'll get things going there. Um, thanks, everybody, and we will see you all next time. Thank you.